0: This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the AM Basic Podcast. Today we're going to talk about how to manage patients with a high potassium level, also known as hyperkalemia. After hyponatremia, this is the second most common cause of serious electrolyte abnormalities that we see in the emergency department. So we need to have a methodical approach to this problem. So let's get started. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views or opinions of the Department of Defense, U.S. Army, or the Fort Hood Post-Command. Let's start this podcast off with a patient with hyperkalemia. So you have a patient with a potassium of 8. So let's call nephrology and start dialysis, right? Not so fast. The very first thing that we have to address is whether or not the potassium measurement is for real. This is because the number one cause of hyperkalemia is hyperkalemia. We often call this lab error, although this is usually our fault when we draw the blood. What happens is that when the blood is drawn, If it is drawn out too quickly, then the blood can hemolyze. This is when the blood cells hit the wall of the tube and lice open, and they spill their potassium. When this happens, it falsely elevates the measured potassium level. Whenever you get a patient with a high potassium, check for the level of hemolysis. There is no standard way of reporting hemolysis that I have seen. I have seen measurements of either 1 to 4+, plus or small, medium, large, and gross hemolysis. There is no good rule of thumb to say how much hemolysis is acceptable for a particular level of potassium, so you have to make a judgment call. If you have a patient with a slightly high potassium of 5.2, but 2 plus hemolysis, then I wouldn't be that worried. However, if you have a patient with a potassium of 7, with only 1 plus hemolysis, then I would believe that measurement. Believe it or not, in the ED, we still get the occasional asymptomatic patient who is sent in, sometimes by ambulance, after they get lab results back with a high potassium and no one looked at the hemolysis level or made them come in anyway, quote, just to be safe. So with all of that being said, don't automatically blow off an elevated potassium when you see hemolysis. Take it in the clinical context of the patient. The first thing you should do is to make sure that the patient is stable, get an EKG, and then repeat the labs. We'll talk about the EKG findings in a second, but if the EKG is normal, and the repeat labs without hemolysis are okay, then you are done for now. The symptoms of hyperkalemia are similar to those with hyponatremia. They're pretty nonspecific. Patients will probably complain of weakness, fatigue, nausea or vomiting, or they may be altered. As far as causes of hyperkalemia, the most common cause by far is renal failure, But there are other less common causes, such as the use of spironolactone, beta blockers, the anti-rejection medication cyclosporine, also insulin deficiency, as seen mostly in DKA, and crush injuries that cause rhabdo. So let's talk about the patient who has hyperkalemia for real. You'll want to make sure that you have good IV access, then get an EKG. Let's briefly talk about the classic EKG changes with hyperkalemia. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know that whenever I say classic, it is Latin for 20%, and that is the case here. You shouldn't rely solely on the EKG to diagnose hyperkalemia, because only 20-30% to 30% of patients with hyperkalemia will have EKG changes. However, we should know these changes, because it may help us diagnose the hyperkalemia before the labs come back. While there are some texts that suggest that you can tell a specific potassium level by EKG changes... It hasn't been shown to be accurate, and it's not worth memorizing. What you can say is that there is a progression of EKG changes. The first change in the EKG will be a peaked T-wave. The best way to describe this change over a podcast is that it would hurt your butt to sit on it. The next EKG change you will see is a gradual widening of the QRS complex until you eventually get a sine wave at the highest level of potassium. The next thing we need to do is to treat hyperkalemia. First, we'll talk about how to treat critically ill patients with hyperkalemia, because we will throw the kitchen sink at these patients. If you can learn the kitchen sink first, then you can treat patients with mild hyperkalemia by picking and choosing your therapies. The mnemonic I use for the treatment of hyperkalemia is C-Big-K-Die. That's the letter C for calcium, B-I-G, the letter K, and the word die, D-I-E. Let's go through what this mnemonic stands for, one by one, and then we'll talk about the individual treatments. The first letter for this mnemonic is C for calcium. The B-I-G part of this mnemonic stands for beta agonists and bicarb, insulin, and glucose. K stands for K-exalate, and I also use it to remember Lasix, which sounds like it ends with a K. For the international listeners out there, k is sodium polystyrene sulfonate, and Lasix is furosemide. The D-I-E part of the mnemonic stands for dialysis. So one more time, that's C-big-K-di, and it stands for calcium, beta agonists, and bicarb, insulin, glucose, K-exalate, and Lasix, and dialysis. The nice thing about this mnemonic is that it also groups the treatments together by their mechanism of action. Let's talk about calcium first. The reason why we give calcium to patients with hyperkalemia is that it antagonizes the effects of high potassium on the myocardium. You'll hear people refer to this as cardiac membrane stabilization. So we should get in that calcium as soon as possible to make sure that the patient doesn't arrest from their hyperkalemia. Some texts say that you only need to give calcium if you have EKG changes, but there is very little downside to giving calcium to any patient with bona fide hyperkalemia. Patients tolerate hypercalcemia very well, so don't hesitate on the calcium if the patient is sick. If you have a regular peripheral IV in, you can start with 1 amp of calcium gluconate, but don't hesitate to give 3 or more amps in a patient with severe hyperkalemia. If you happen to have central access, then you'll want to give calcium chloride, which has 3 times more elemental calcium than calcium gluconate. The way I remember this is that chloride equals central line. The reason is that calcium chloride is very irritating to vessels and can cause tissue damage if it extravasates. However, in a sick patient, you may want to give calcium chloride to get in that big load of calcium faster. While the textbook answer is not to give calcium chloride through a peripheral IV, some have argued that as long as you have a solid IV line that works well, then you're okay. This means that an 18-gauge IV in the antecubital fossa is fine but a 24-gauge in a tiny hand vein is a no-go. One more thing to keep in mind regarding calcium chloride is that you will only want to use calcium chloride in patients who are in cardiac arrest, have a low blood pressure, or have severe liver disease. The reason is that you need the liver to metabolize the calcium gluconate to release the elemental calcium. If your liver can't metabolize calcium gluconate because of low blood flow or bad liver disease, then you won't get anywhere giving calcium gluconate. Now let me make one quick point about the use of calcium with hyperkalemia. In the textbooks and on the boards you may see references to not using calcium in patients who are taking digoxin. The theory is that mixing digoxin and calcium can cause something called stone heart. This is tetany of the heart muscle due to an influx of calcium when the ATPase channel has been blocked by digoxin. This is mostly a myth and came out of an animal study on dogs. Further studies have shown no adverse events in patients who were given calcium for hyperkalemia and were only later discovered to be on digoxin. In fact, the patients given calcium usually improved after it was given. In the heat of the moment with a sick patient whom you don't know their medication list, no one can fault you for giving calcium to someone on digoxin. If you know that the patient is on digoxin and they are hyperkalemic and critically ill, A few experts have recommended giving it and documenting thoroughly in your chart why you made that decision. If you really want to be on the safe side, then I would get some Digibind from the pharmacy and have it at the patient's bedside if they deteriorate. Digibind is an antibody to digoxin and can reverse its effects pretty quickly. The bottom line here is that this is something you need to be aware of for your tests, but the overall consensus is that this is a medical myth. The next letter on the mnemonic is B which stands for beta-agonist and bicarb. These treatments both work by driving potassium into the cell. Let's talk about beta agonists first. The nice thing about beta agonists is that we can start this treatment right away, even before we have IV access. You can start the patient on an hour-long albuterol nebulizer, and it will lower the patient's potassium by about 0.5 equivalents in one hour. Sodium bicarb is the next treatment to talk about, although you shouldn't give it routinely in patients with hyperkalemia unless they are acidotic. Bicarb can assist in driving potassium into the cell, but it won't work unless the patient is acidotic. I wouldn't give this at all in a patient with hyperkalemia from DKA unless they are crashing right in front of you. In patients with DKA, giving them insulin and fixing their DKA will drive down their potassium without any other treatments. The next treatment is insulin and glucose. These work to drive potassium into the cells, because potassium is brought into the cell along with glucose. You can give 10 units of regular insulin, IV, and 1 amp of 50% dextrose, which is usually called D50. If the patient is diabetic, then make sure to check the blood sugar first before giving the insulin. If the patient has a high blood sugar, then you don't necessarily need to give the glucose. The glucose is more for those patients who are diabetic, who have low or normal blood sugar or for those patients who aren't diabetic. However, some have said that in a patient who is not diabetic, you can just give the glucose, because the glucose will stimulate the body's own insulin to drive the potassium into the cell, but I would still give the insulin anyway. The next treatment to give is k This is a resin that supposedly binds potassium, but most likely works by causing diarrhea that helps eliminate potassium from the body. There is actually very little evidence that k works, but it can cause harm. I won't go into the lack of evidence here, but just know that it's not a great way to lower potassium, and it takes hours to have effect. In the ED, we are looking for things that work a lot faster. Our internal medicine colleagues like k a lot more, so don't be surprised if they ask you to give this. The dose is 15 grams by mouth, or 30 grams per rectum. The next to last treatment is Lasix or furosemide. This is a loop diuretic that will work at the level of the kidney to eliminate potassium. The patient will excrete potassium in their urine, so this will take hours to work. Be careful in patients who have bad kidney function because Lasix will worsen their kidney function. If the patient is already actively on dialysis, then you can use Lasix pretty much with abandon. 30 mg of IV Lasix is a good starting point. If the patient is on oral Lasix as an outpatient, then you can give their total daily dose as an IV dose. The final treatment for hyperkalemia is dialysis. This is the best and fastest way to eliminate potassium from the body, but it takes a lot of work to get done. You'll want to do all your usual treatments that we already talked about before going to dialysis. You may be able to avoid dialysis altogether if you aggressively treat the patient with the treatments we have already reviewed. If the patient is coming in with hyperkalemia and is already on dialysis, then these patients will benefit from immediate dialysis. So if you have severe hyperkalemia and the patient is super sick, then get your nephrologist involved early in case the patient needs emergent dialysis. Now let's take a step back. Let's say that you have a patient with mild hyperkalemia. Let's say 6.0. No EKG changes and the patient is alert and oriented and hemodynamically stable and they don't have any hemolysis on their laps. You may be able to just give a beta agonist insulin, glucose, and Lasix while the inpatient medical team works up the cause for the hyperkalemia. You can pick and choose among the various treatments to reduce their potassium level. So let's review all of this one more time. The first step in any patient who has hyperkalemia is to make sure that it isn't pseudo hyperkalemia from hemolysis. Make sure that the patient is stable, get an EKG, and repeat the lapse. The EKG changes of hyperkalemia are inconsistent, but they start with a peak T wave, which then progresses to QRS widening, which can look like a sine wave, with the most severe cases of hyperkalemia. The mnemonic to remember treatments for hyperkalemia is C-big-K-die. That stands for calcium, beta agonists, and bicarb, insulin, glucose, k-exalate, and lasix, and dialysis. Give calcium immediately to stabilize the cardiac membrane. Calcium gluconate is preferred for the peripheral IV, but calcium chloride gives you three times more calcium, but should be given through a central line or a really good peripheral IV. Next, give your treatments to shift the potassium into the cell. Give an hour-long beta-agonist nebulizer, and that will lower the potassium by about 0.5 mil equivalents. Follow this by 10 units of regular insulin IV and 1 amp of D50. Although there isn't great evidence for it, you can give Kxlate to cause diarrhea that will lower the potassium. You can also give IV Lasix, which will cause the potassium to be excreted in the urine over the next few hours. Finally, in severe cases of hyperkalemia, the last step is dialysis. If the patient is already on dialysis, then this is your best option, but you'll start other treatments first. That's all I have for hyperklemia now. I know that this was a shorter episode, but hopefully we hit on the major points of ED management of hyperklemia. As always, drop me a line at steve dot org or leave a comment on the website. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the Basic Podcast, signing off.